0: In 1963, director Stanley Donnan and stars Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn gave the world a Hitchcockian thriller that heralded the end
1: of the golden age of cinema. In 2021, we return to Wales for a wine-finished whiskey. The film is Charade. The whiskey is Pendaren Portwood. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are looking at a movie that, uh, this it's a banner week, Brad. A movie that I it, have not seen. It's about freaking time, Bob. <laughs> I have controlled the list of movies for so long, we finally let Brad have one here. We are watching 1963's Charade. <laughs>
2: He must have known Charles pretty well. How can you tell? He's allergic to him.
0: Film and Whiskey Nation, just so you know, uh, you've probably heard this on and off throughout the episodes. I've been asking for this movie for nigh on two years now. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, So it's been a long time coming, man.
1: I just have to imagine that every time you there was a movie that you didn't like, that there was some sort of internal process where you were just like, damn it, Like we could have watched Charade <laughs> and I had to watch yes. this instead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, man. I got to say, man, it's weird being in your shoes because typically, you know, we watch a movie or we have a movie set up for the podcast and I know where we're going to go. You know, I, I kind of know what points I want to make. I, I want to talk about, you know, some analysis of the movie or the cultural impact of the movie. I had to really do my research this time, man, because I can't just spout things I already knew. Like, I'm a huge movie nerd, but this was my first time seeing Charade. It was a bit of a blind spot for you. Absolutely. And, you know, once you suggested it, I was like, all right, I'm not going to watch it now because it's been on my watch list for years and years. I was just yeah. like, yeah, we're going to wait till it comes up for the podcast. And I am super glad that I did. But, Brad, we have an even bigger surprise today than me not having seen the movie. Why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what it is? Guys, we are not alone here.
0: Uh, Bob and I are joined by one of our absolute favorite YouTubers out there,
1: Patrick H. Willems. Patrick, how are you doing today, man? Hey, guys. uh, I'm doing great. Patrick, I have to say, first of all, welcome back. We haven't had you on the show in a little over a year, uh, we supplied you with apparently enough whiskey last time to last you throughout a year, which is saying something cause it was the COVID year. So it's true. I, I hope you're doing well, man.
2: Uh, I mean, clearly well enough not to have just like immediately drank all that whiskey in a day, uh, <laughs> last time. So, so yeah, uh, no, I'm, uh, things are, things are going well on my end and I'm, I'm happy to be back. Happy to be talking about this
0: movie. Well, at the very least, Patrick, we've learned that temperance is a virtue that you possess. So congratulations, <laughs> sir. Yeah, I look, I,
2: I will say here I have a bottle of water next to me uh, to keep me hydrated for speaking on mic. Um, I do not have uh, any whiskey in the room with me.
1: Well, in solidarity with you, I'm going to go ahead and join you. I don't have any whiskey next to me either, because Brad and I have already recorded the whiskey segment, which we'll be inserting here in a little bit. I have a cup of fully caffeinated coffee sitting next to me, which is really saying something. I feel like I have hit old age pretty rapidly in the last year, and to be drinking coffee at 830 is just really tempting fate for me. And to be clear, eight thirty in the evening, (laughs) right? Right. Yes, (laughs) I was. And you guys are
0: making me feel bad over here. Uh, I'm still drinking whiskey. So, uh, if it makes you
2: feel better, I did.
0: I had uh, two glasses of wine earlier. Hey,
1: uh, with dinner. So, 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 yeah. You got to get in the spirit of this movie. It's like, you know, we're in the middle of Paris.
2: Yeah, this is a two glasses of wine movie.
1: (laughs) It definitely is. All right. So in the spirit of that, Patrick, I have to ask, you know, we've been emailing back and forth. I I gave you the whole list of movies that we're going to go through this season. And pretty quickly, you responded and said that you wanted to talk about Charade. So what is it about this movie that made it stand out to you that made you want to go back and rewatch it for this podcast? Uh, So. So I'm I'm actually I'm looking here at the email with the big
2: list that you sent me, and there I'm not going to give away things that are on the list that I don't, I'm not going to spoil upcoming episodes. <laughs> but I'll, I'll put it this way: there are uh, there are movies that I have uh, spoken about at length in videos I've made, movies that are part of franchises that I have a lot of opinions on, um, uh, movies I've seen recently, and and love. And then I saw Charade there. And I had only seen Charade once before until last night. And it was, I think I watched it late at night on TCM when I was like, I don't know, 15 maybe? Uh, And I remember quite liking it, but I also remembered virtually nothing about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, a couple years ago in one of the... Uh, One of the Criterion Collection sales that they say they only do a couple times a year, but it feels like they happen like every other week. Um, (laughs) But uh, I had picked up the Criterion Blu-ray of Charade, and it was sitting there on my shelf, and I hadn't watched it since I bought it. And I was just like, this is a great excuse to like revisit that movie and actually use this thing that I had already purchased. And also like so many of the movies like uh, that I – that might have been more obvious choice. I feel like people talk about those a lot. Like, uh, you know, movie podcasts can always use more discussion about like pre nineteen seventy movies. Yeah, and uh, and so yeah, I just figured this would. I, I I mostly just did it because I I wanted to watch the movie again, and this was a good <laughs> excuse.
0: Hey, I I will take any reason I can get uh, to hold it over Bob that Patrick chose my movie. That's true. So that uh, is true. Um,
1: <laughs> he, he wasn't. He wasn't as tempted about my my Scott Cooper directed Out of the Furnace as as he was. <laughs> <laughs> Which a, a, I can't. Movie
2: I have not seen.
1: Oh, super good! I can't wait to talk about it. But uh, alas, we have to talk about Stanley Donnan's Charade tonight. So, Brad, <laughs> before we jump into the next segment of our show, Brad explains why don't you just give us like thirty seconds on your history with this movie? Like, how many times have you seen it? Is it a favorite of yours? Is it just something that you kind of wanted to parse out on this podcast? Like, where, where are you falling on this thing? Oh, man. I, I'm pretty sure that I
0: watched this movie with my dad when I was, I don't know, somewhere from like 12 to 14, early teenager years. And it's just a movie that I remember, like you said, Patrick, I remember watching it as a young teenager and falling in love with it. It, it was, there was something about the identities. The the multiple identities, Audrey Hepburn's, it's just such a charming performance from her that I remember watching it probably three or four times throughout my high school years. And then since high school, I, I maybe have watched it once or twice more through college or my mid-twenties, um, but it's probably been about five or six years since I've watched it. And I was just super excited to get it onto the podcast because I, I think it fits the vein of what we do here on Film and Whiskey in a really beautiful way. And when you told me that you hadn't seen it before, I was like, oh, we, we got to get this on here. So that's kind of that's a
1: little bit of my history with with charade. Well, we have teased it long enough, folks. It's time for us to move into America's favorite segment. Brad explains this is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. And that is not the case today. But, Brad, can you break down the plot of this movie in 60 seconds or less?
0: I just might be able to, Bob. Uh, Charade is a film about a young, soon-to-be divorcee uh, named Regina Lampert. She meets a charming American named Peter Joshua on vacation. She returns to Paris to find her flat abandoned. Her husband has been murdered. And the rest of the movie is kind of unraveling the spools of a mystery that he has a quarter of a million dollars hidden away somewhere. There's a group of men who thinks that she has it. So they continue to chase her. They try to kill her. They try to kill uh, her friend who she met in the Alps, who now is uh, kind of becoming her lover. And it's it's a wild chase. uh, There's stamps involved. (laughs)
1: And uh, I guess, I
0: guess we'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> I always love the part of Brad explains where things just slowly unravel. Like you just kind of—I was—I was at was a wall. I was following the explanation, and then all of a sudden, it just becomes this very like abstract. You just sh- <laughs> say random words. There's stamps involved. Yeah, I feel like
0: my issue with Brad explains is that either I stay at like ten thousand feet. And just kind of give a quick observation of the movie, or I actually get into some of the weeds. Mm-hmm. And it's when I get into a few of the weeds, I'm like, oh well, if I say that, then I also have to talk about this, right? And I also have to talk about this and that. And at that
1: point, I'm just kind of like, eh, there's stamps. Well, in this movie, there's so many <laughs> twists that there's no way you could you could like elucidate everything that's happening in this movie it, in, in a exactly. minute or less. It's it's super yeah. twisty. I think the thing, guys, that I just want to start with is. This movie is fun as hell. It's just a fun movie. I love, you know, I don't want to call it a caper, but it's kind of it has the vibe of one of those style of movies. It's a fun romp through, you know, Paris, where you have these twisting, turning kind of things going on. And if I can give a little bit of personal history, I just went to see the new James Bond the other night. No time to die. Uh, I was I'm really glad I saw it in the theater. Uh, But I got to say, I miss fun Bond like I I have loved the Daniel Craig era. I am ready for Fun Bond to return and watching this movie it reminded me how much I love films like those old James Bonds where it's just like it's silly and you can't really take any of it seriously and it's just fun as hell. Yeah, I I know exactly what you
2: mean and this this movie especially like as someone who did not you, you know who's not alive in the 60s I feel like this movie is like When we think back to, like, what we imagined the 60s as, like, best case scenario, this is how – I feel like this movie is, is like, how we would like to uh, imagine the 60s really was. And also, like, this is – in terms of, like, Bond movies in particular, I I think this movie is probably, I would say, a better movie than – than any of the the 1960s Bond movies. And I like those movies, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. But like it, it, it delivers so many of like the pleasures that like Bond movies give you, except I think I would argue with even more. Mm. And like right away, I mean, the opening like five minutes of this movie, because I'd forgotten pretty much all of it from when I first saw it. And in the first few minutes, I'm just sitting there going, is this – the best movie I've ever seen? Is this literally everything I could possibly want from cinema? Like, can I just like briefly walk through like the first couple minutes of the movie? Oh, please do. Because, so it, you know, opens at night, train going by, dead body gets thrown from a train. No context, this just happens. Then it goes into this beautiful, Opening title sequence by Maurice Binder. Uh, that's like when you think six like sixties movie title sequence. This is what you think of mm-hmm. with yeah. like you know uh, stark colors and shapes moving all around. Like jazzy Henry Mancini score. It's it's so cool. Immediately then. Uh, the, the the next image, and this is like a, a a thing that personally I have I I think ever since uh, watching the original Pink Panther movie when I was like five or six, I've just like been obsessed with. It begins with people skiing in like the French Alps, and uh and then pulls back from people skiing onto like the deck of the ski lodge, mm-hmm. and then a like a gloved hand holding a gun emerges, and it, it's. And then of course it's revealed to be like a water pistol and all that stuff, but uh, but like right, it's like it's it's so stylish and so like confidently executed and just so much fun, Mm -hmm. like right away, and I'm just like ah, this is like this is a a
1: proper movie, this like. (laughs) Every other movie should be like this. I had the same reaction. I was like that the uh, like the poetic cinema meme for for like half yeah. of this movie. It was just like, oh my gosh, why? And and it sounds so dumb and cliched to say it, but it's just like, why don't they make them like this anymore? And you know, I just I think I'm just I'm done with the like oppressively bleak. You know, I I had to see Matt Reeves' Batman trailer like 18 times the other day because I I saw multiple movies when I went to the movies. And and this is just such a refreshing kind of reset for me. So maybe personally Brad this just hit me at the exact right time. So thank you for that. Yeah, dude, I I am happy to provide. Patrick, I I'm with you
0: man. The opening of this movie is just so beautifully charming and it sets you up for every single thing that is to come in the movie. Like the witty the witty one-liners in this movie uh, it starts off right at, right at the beginning when Regina and Peter, uh, which is, you know, his first name are talking and, and she goes, well, I already know an awful lot of people. And until one of them dies, I, I couldn't possibly meet anyone else. And Gary that, Grant just goes, well, if anyone goes on the critical list, let me know. And he turns around and walks away. It's, it's beautiful. I like genuinely, I paused it after that
2: exchange and was like, God damn it. Why, why? Why can't people write dialogue like that anymore? <laughs> yes! It's just, I, I mean, it's like, I mean, again, th- this sounds like such a stupid statement, but it's like, you know, like, really, what more do you need for movies than beautiful, charming people speaking clever, funny, yeah. charming dialogue in beautiful locations running around, and also there's a gun.
0: Right we know each other
2: why do you think we're going to i don't know how would i know because i already know an awful lot of people and until one of them dies i couldn't possibly meet anyone else mm. well if anyone goes on the critical list let me know mm. quitter <laughs> you give up awfully easily don't you it's it's like the like, perfect like formula that that that's it that's it just uh <laughs> just do this uh forever uh always make 10 of these a year come on
1: all right, guys, so where do you want to go? Do you want to talk about Stanley Donnan's direction? Do you want to talk about the performances? Brad, where would you like to go from here? I think we should stick with the uh, the traditional film and whiskey format. Let's talk about
0: performances, because, you know, there's quite a few of them in this film. And I think that everybody plays everybody plays such a specific role in this movie. There's nobody that really overlaps in any sense, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I'm just kind of curious from from your guys standpoint, who really stood
1: out to you in this movie? Well, I'm sure we'll get around to talking about the two leads, um, but I thought the real strength of this cast is the fact that the supporting cast is so good. And, you know, most of them it's went a, on a really stacked. Oh, my gosh. Cast. Yeah. And most of them went on to like bigger and better things. But like seeing George Kennedy in here and being like, oh, man, I, you know, I will see him four years later in Cool Hand Luke and James Coburn. Who had just a, an absolutely bonkers year? Like he had this movie and The Great Escape come out in the same year. Like, yeah, yeah. does it ever get better than that? Like, that's a perfect one-two punch. Uh, but for I, me, I was I was going through his filmography uh, after I
2: watched this, and I this is like he was like just like I mean I, I feel like this was the year where he became a movie star. Yeah. Before this, it was just like a decade of like tons of TV. Yep. And then he rap just like immediately makes the lead and and, like you look at him in this movie and he's like you know he has like such a distinctive face and vibe and everything like Mm -hmm. yeah of of course he's you know gonna go on to do
0: uh, so much stuff i think that for me with coburn in this film it really felt like uh, almost like this is you know nearing the end of cary grant's you know run didn't he make like two more movies after this i I think it was only two more and so you have somebody like Coburn in here who, you know, he's not a young, young man, but he's he's decently younger getting into the prime of his career. And it felt kind of like this was a handoff type of
1: movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from what I've been able to read about this movie, it seemed like Cary Grant was starting to get a little bit self-conscious about his age. Um, he turned either 59 or 60 years old during the production of this movie. So, I mean, you know, he was up there for a movie star, especially at this time. And he was really self-conscious about the age gap with Audrey Hepburn. Uh, And so they kind of went back and doctored the script a little bit to include dialogue where he addressed that, where he talked about, you know, a man of my age and things like that. So, Brad, I I think you're right. And that may have played into the fact that he only made like three more movies after this. He definitely uh, was was pretty firm about going into retirement and then not coming out of it again.
0: Well, and I'm glad you brought that up, Bob, because one of the things that this viewing I had more of an awareness of was that relationship between him and well, really the relationship between Peter Joshua, the character and Regina Lampert and that age difference. And like it was just very refreshing for me to see a movie from the 60s. Where the man didn't just assume that he had every right to the female (laughs) co-lead. Yeah. Right. That like he genuinely you get the sense in the movie that his character genuinely is like, look, like there's an age difference here. I don't know if we should be really pursuing one another like we can flirt. That's fine. But like to give Regina the choice to say, no, like I choose to continually pursue you despite all of the craziness
1: that's going on.
0: I don't know. Did that strike anybody else as you watched it?
1: No, I definitely think so. Like this movie feels very I don't want to say subversive, but uh, ahead of its time in that way. And it's the funny thing is it only came about as a result of Cary Grant kind of expressing his like uh, unease with the the age gap. And so they they basically took Audrey Hepburn's character and kind of made her into the one who's doing the pursuing in this movie. And I think it's it's really revolutionary. And in a lot of ways, it's the opposite of what you would typically see in a movie like this. You know, this movie gets compared to Hitchcock all the time, and I'm I'm sure we'll get into that comparison here. But even in Hitchcock movies, you look at a movie like North by Northwest, and it's usually, you know, the guy picks up a mysterious woman along the way who just happens to want to cross the country with him and do a bunch of stuff you know what i mean and this movie it's the complete opposite and she is in the position that all of those leading hitchcock men have been in and they even make her like you know brad for, for lack of a better term audrey hepburn is like extra horny in this movie you know what i mean like and this is not this is not something you typically see in 1963 movies like carrie grant is is trying to push off her advances. And she's like, no, I I want this bro. When, (laughs) when she's trying to get with him and, and force him into the shower and he starts showering
0: with his full suit on. (laughs) That is one of my absolute favorite scenes in all of cinema. Like to see an older aging star make himself ridiculous in that way. I it's, it's just brilliant. But yeah, dude, (laughs) the way they write uh, Regina in this movie, She wants herself some, uh, Peter Joshua.
2: (laughs) I mean, well, clearly she was, you know, frustrated, uh, in her, her other marriage that was about to end anyway. And so look, she's like, uh, she was always planning on being, you know, back on the market. Yeah. So why not accelerate that process
0: a little bit? Why not do it with Cary Grant?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I said, I, 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 I guess we're pivoting into talking about the leads now. Um, I do have to like. Uh, I I mean, I generally like Cary Grant, and uh, and I will say sometimes I found so like for instance, like I I love uh, the Philadelphia Story. Mm. Um, I think he is so completely like overshadowed by Jimmy Stewart in that movie in like every way, and is like kind a little bit dull as the the, the romantic lead, mm-hmm. and like I feel like you know. Cary Grant, like, can sometimes uh, fall into being a little dry sometimes. And I think, you know, that can be fun in, like, North by Northwest because it's, like, a guy who's, like, you know, kind of dry, then, like, thrown into this, right. this situation. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, like, like uh, you know, the the sort of wrong man uh, situation that Audrey Hepburn finds herself in here. And Cary Grant is so just, like, perfectly like effortlessly charming in this like you get what as much as you know she does start saying i i love you very you know uh, very early faster than anyone would in real life right but like you get the appeal because it's like oh okay this guy this guy rules he's uh yeah he's he's delightful and and likewise like my my introduction to this movie when i saw it way back in high school was um growing up my sister i feel like like many girls have for decades just was really into Audrey Hepburn Mm -hmm. and like owned like every one of her movies on DVD, even stuff like the nuns story, (laughs) uh, which are not the obvious choices. And so I just, I grew up not necessarily like watching them all myself, but just like having Audrey Hepburn movies, like playing uh, like in the house a lot. So I was just aware of them. And charade was one of the, the only ones I actually kind of like ended up, Checking out. And uh, b- and then it is one of those things where it's like because she is so iconic at, at this point, like in 2021, I feel like a lot of people might know her better from just like the poster for Breakfast at Tiffany's yeah. than like yeah. actual performances. Yep. Uh, but then like, you know, watching this movie where she basically is doing like the kind of thing that like Cary Grant did in North by Northwest while also being like a comedic and romantic lead you realize like oh oh right no this is why she was a huge star yeah. because she's like she, she's so charming and so watchable and like carries basically the whole thing also you know you got the like again 1963 it's like this it's like everything was like perfect you got the uh Givenchy like costumes yep. that she's in the whole time mm-hmm. so like every scene it's like you know walking in with a killer look uh, It's just, I mean, like, this is like, these are perfect movie star performances.
1: <laughs> okay, before we move off of performances, because I do want to get into talking about Stanley Don in a little bit, but I have to say, I think maybe my favorite performance in the whole movie is Walter Matthau, who yes. I have okay. only I, I, ever known as like the grumpiest person ever. It, like, mm-hmm. whether it's in Grumpy Old Men, whether it's in Hello Dolly, whatever it might be in. And to see him, Look really suave. And I mean, like, I don't know how he does it, but he's in scenes with two of the most charismatic people I've ever seen in movies. And he kind of steals every one of those scenes by just being in in a sense, like the straight man to them. I don't know how he did it. but I like I could not take my eyes off of his performance in this movie. and that was something I was absolutely not expecting. I think, you know, the perfect thing that that they did with the casting of this movie was, you have two beautiful, charming
2: movie stars in the leads. And then, like, just some of the best character actors around in, like, all the other main mm-hmm. roles. Mm. And so you've got, like, Kennedy, Coburn, mathau Just, like, th- th- guys with faces. Yeah. You know, with, like, you could... if their If their head was in silhouette, you could recognize them from just the shape of their face. <laughs> and... And yeah, and and Mathau is so completely different from like every. I mean, I mean, everyone ever. No one is like Mathau. And uh, wait, are we talking spoilers early on? Oh
1: yeah, please spoil away.
2: Okay, the how often does Walter Mathau become the
1: villain at the end of a movie? Right, like never. Yeah. I mean, this and Dennis the Menace, that's pretty much it, right? <laughs> and and the thing is, Dennis the Menace,
2: because uh, Christopher Lloyd is playing the scariest man in cinematic history in that movie.
0: <laughs> like, you know, total, like, Mathow seems nice and cuddly compared exactly. to him. Exactly, exactly. Oh, man, I am so glad that we just brought up Dennis the Menace, because, Bob, when you were talking about Walter Matthau performances, I realized I was like, my first experience of Walter Matthau, 100 percent was Dennis the Menace. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) But I I also think that as you were talking about how suave he is in this movie, Bob, it really reminds me of I, I think this was from season one of the podcast when we talked about when Harry met Sally and it's like, do you buy Billy Crystal as a, like, sex symbol? Like, he is attractive and suave and amazing in When Harry Met Sally. And I feel similarly about Walter Matthau here of, like, he's completely out of his normal casting element. But you, like, buy him as this secret agent who is, like,
1: you know, trying to help Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. I, I loved his performance in this. I'm so glad that I am not on an island with with Walter Matthau because he stole the whole thing for me.
0: I will say, but I want to bring up one specific scene for, for Audrey, actually, before we move on from, from the performances. I think that the reason this movie is so daggone good is because genuinely like 70 to 75% of this movie is witty and funny and interesting and just flat out fun. But there is enough seriousness that it really sucks you into the story mm-hmm. and when i think about james coburn cornering her in the phone booth the way she reacts to him yeah is so incredibly visceral and dude his like he is just tossing the match after match on her that i just absolutely love that scene and i think that is is an example of how this movie hits both ends of the spectrum of it is comedic and funny and interesting and mysterious, but it's also very – in its own way, it's violent and serious.
2: Yeah, I mean the like the whole climactic sequence is just – It's. I mean I know that the really easy, obvious comparison is like two Hitchcock movies, but like – it, it it basically is like from like the location to the staging mm-hmm. to everything mm-hmm. like the climax could just be out of a Hitchcock movie. Right. It's like it's it there there are not laughs there. It like there are life or death stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and it's it's so well executed. Like like Mathau goes from being so affable to being like you know I'm you know they have their nice little joke about uh. You know like like spies, but but you know, the CIA calls them agents, yeah and uh and and stuff like that you like he's such a friendly guy, and uh and he's like he's genuinely menacing at the end, and yeah, exactly like um, as you were saying about the uh the phone booth scene like the the move of just like kind of dropping matches on her is it's I've never seen that before in a movie, and it's so threatening, yeah, it's
1: sinister, yeah. All right, let's let's take this energy. Let's segue into talking about the filmmaking itself because I want to talk about Stanley Donen. I guess the place I want to start is where you're going Brad, which is this whole like two ends of the spectrum thing. Right? This is this is a comedy, it's very breezy, and then there are elements of it that get very dark and violent, and then there's also the the like the suspense kind of thrilling element of it. Let me start by asking you guys this. If you had to quantify it, what percentage of the comedy works for you? Oh, man. Uh, there are certain moments
0: of the film where you kind of question what's going on uh, comedically, but overall, I, I would say the comedy works well, from the the orange scene when they're in the club trying to pass the orange from person to person to the way that the, the little kid kind of uh, is... Uh,
2: okay, this is... Anytime I see this in a movie, I love it so much. The the uh, the little kid, uh, uh, Audrey's friend's son, right? Yeah, uh, Jean Louis, I believe his name yep. is. Yep. Um, it's like he's the quintessential small European boy, where he's wearing a chunky turtleneck sweater and shorts, <laughs> and then he has like a like a blonde bowl cut. Right. And just, but and just look, has like a dumb expression on his face. All every time he is on screen, I laugh.
1: It was like it's. It was like the filmmakers had to be like, "Let's take all of our like microaggressions towards the French out on this kid's design, <laughs> like because that, that that it wasn't good enough to just do that to the kid. They had to like ADR all of his dialogue with a kid doing like the worst french accent i've ever heard like it it was like aggressively bad
2: and just his name being jean louis it's like (laughs) yeah when he's there so you know when you ask about what percentage of the comedy is successful i mean it's really hard for me to say because when jean louis is on screen i am laughing consistently (laughs) especially if someone like picks him up because he's, he, <laughs> it's just a funny visual. Yeah. Because he's wearing a a chunky sweater and shorts. <laughs> Why would you do that? I, I don't just, know. I kind of like, wish he's they had
1: dumb. I just wish they had kind of given him like a like a chain smoking habit to go with it, and just kind of done like the John Mulaney's dog Petunia voice at him. Like, just you need yeah. to go even further with that character. The one thing that I think he needed is if I if
2: I might bring up what is a uh for like in my personal opinion uh the funniest moment in uh 20th century american cinema um uh you guys have seen a league of their own right oh yeah yeah um, so you know the scene in a league of their own when um uh the 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 one like fat little son of one of the players tom hanks is getting really excited in the last in the final game and he's going oh, we're yeah. going to win we're going to win and the little kid just starts going you're gonna lose, you're yep. g- and, and just like starts <laughs> taunting him, and and Tom Hanks picks up a a glove and just throws it at, and hits the kid in the face, and the kid <laughs> yes. s- takes one step and staggers and then topples over, and it is I like. Anytime I watch the movie, I pause that moment and rewind and watch it three times in a <laughs> row because it's so funny. But it's it, that kid is like dumb looking in a hilarious way in the exact same way as Jean Louis. Yeah. and I just, I just think it would have like put t- given this movie like an extra like half star if there was a scene where someone threw something at his face and he toppled
0: over. Oh yeah. <laughs> So C- Carrie Grant just whips a baseball glove a- a- at his face for no reason. <laughs> How funny would that be? Oh,
2: oh my man.
0: God. I want to see that so bad. Is there like
2: <laughs> is there some just footage somewhere? Was the kid being bad on set? and Maybe like Audrey Hepburn,
1: I don't know, like threw her hat at him. I just want right? to see it. <laughs> All right. So um, I, I'm going to try to find a way to segue us back into talking about Stanley Don in here, because I really want to hear. Patrick, especially I want to hear your take on this. So this movie is constantly compared to Hitchcock. I I, I think obviously, you know, no disrespect to Stanley Donnan. I think if this was a Hitchcock movie, there would have been some some much more distinct kind of filmmaking, you know, a tourist kind of things going on here. Stanley Donnan is a really interesting filmmaker to me. Uh, you know, he got his start directing films as a co-director with Gene Kelly. Uh, you probably know him from co-directing Singing in the Rain. I mean, it's he's a great filmmaker. One of the things that I noticed in this movie, especially he does this thing with some of his coverage when he's when he's filming that, like, he has a lot of handheld stuff. And sometimes it looks like the the shots that they cut to were not like the shots that were planned, if that makes sense. Like, it it almost has this documentary like kind of like cinema verite thing going on. especially in like the nightclub scenes when they're dancing, the orange stuff, like it gets really kind of nitty gritty in there for a while. And I really liked that. Um, But I I find Stanley Donnan's filmmaking style kind of hard to pin down sometimes. So I I guess I just want to ask Patrick, like, is there anything distinctive that you notice when you watch his movies or like in particular with this movie, stylistic choices that you appreciated?
2: Uh, Well, when it comes to Stanley Donen, uh, it's hard to say because I'm not familiar enough with his uh, his other non musical movies mm-hmm. because I've seen like a good amount of the musicals that he's made, and uh, and then I've seen this. I'm looking at his filmography now, like I have not seen. Two for the Road, I have not seen Arabesque, I haven't seen the original Bedazzled. I so yeah, this is really it as far as non-musicals. So it's hard to say. And this obviously has a, you know, other than just like a general sense of like style, you know, has very little in common as far as the filmmaking goes with Like, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. You wouldn't necessarily (laughs) guess they were by the same guy. And I will say, you know, there's the obvious Hitchcock comparison. I think this movie proves that Stanley Donnan probably could have made North by Northwest, but Mm -hmm. I don't think Alfred Hitchcock could have made On the Town,
1: or It's Always (laughs) Fair Weather. That's fair. That's fair. So,
2: (laughs) yeah, it's—what is so impressive is because— All of his musicals, which are, and to be, you know, entirely clear here, he, whether solo directing or co-directing, made some of the greatest musical movies ever made. Mm -hmm. Like, his filmography is, like, unimpeachable. From, like, On the Town, Royal Wedding, Singing in the Rain, Seven Riders, Seven Brothers, It's Always Fair Weather, Funny Face. It's, like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, uh, but... The filmmaking approach necessary for those movies, which are like deliberately like Mm stagey, which are, you know, like, you know, have a very loose reality, uh, which are to have to be shot in a way to like showcase the choreography. Uh, You know, often several of those movies go into dream ballets. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are often not shot on real locations, they are often just shot on like, you know, backlots and stuff like that. Um, That's very different than you know concocting like a sus- a genuine suspense set piece in like the Paris metro. Yeah. Uh and I think this like really illustrates how versatile uh he is as a filmmaker. Uh in terms of like, you know, I mean again, you just you look at like that opening like right after the the title sequence when you have this one continuous shot that goes from like oh, beautiful uh you know, like like skiers in the Alps, and it come and and it, and it cranes back, like revealing the uh, the deck with all the people and like and mm-hmm. like the, the the characters talk. And I think we see Audrey Hepburn there. And the shot keeps going and reveals the hand holding the gun. And it's like that's all done in in a shot. He's basically like, you know, switching from one genre to another, like you know, without cutting. And it's so confident. And, like, and, like, again, I just, like, this, having just revisited this, I'm now, like, okay, I got to watch more of these. Like, I definitely, I need to watch Arabesque, because that's also written by the same guy Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote this, which would be Peter Stone. And I've just, I'm honestly feeling like we sleep on Stanley Donner as a director, and I say that. Having just admitted, I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but like Gene Kelly tends to get a lot of the credit for the movies they made together, even though Stanley Gunn and like solo directed, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And uh, and then but then the fact that he was able to like on his own, you know, make something as wildly different as charade.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I, th- I think he's really kind of like no matter like how famous some of his movies are, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves.
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I mean, the crazy thing about it is you think about singing in the rain came out in 1952. So we're essentially talking about a decade removed from singing in the rain. The Just the filmmaking style here feels so much more modern than singing in the rain did. And we're talking only 10 years later. And this is really, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of like the French new wave here, but you know, this is before kind of those like Swinging London '60s movies, and it has that sort of vibe and the pacing of it. And I, I think I was most impressed with how contemporary this movie felt. Even though we talked about how they don't make them like this anymore, but that that last sequence on the subway is essentially wordless. Like it is just—it's probably ten minutes long. There's really no dialogue. You think Cary Grant is chasing her because he's the villain. You feel the palpable tension there. And for me, it was the brilliant choice once they get up, you know, into the plaza and they're running through the colonnade to use the columns as like natural wipes and and to cut in between them as they were running. Like it was it was such a great editing choice. Yeah, I, the, the the filmmaking here just felt so fresh and modern to me. It did.
2: like, Like, especially like looking at those sequences, like the camera is moving fast. Mm-hmm. Like there is like uh and the geography is always clear but he's not just shooting it in a lot of like wide static shots it's like a it's a really active kinetic camera work uh which you know you didn't see quite as much back then because it's, it's like pre cams and all that stuff but yeah and also like but doing it on real locations using like really like well like carefully selected locations like and just Making the geography of, like, that uh, that standoff with the columns so clear in terms of when, like, Cary Grant is, like, moving around and, like, knowing exactly where everyone is at all times and then going into the theater after that. Like, that's a totally different skill set than, you know,
0: shooting a Gene Kelly dance number, and he's amazing at both of them. Guys, I could literally sit here and listen to you guys talk about the beauty of charade all day. Uh, this is just one of my favorite movies. I love where we're going with it. But I do think that we need to get into this Pandaren Portwood. Let's
1: do it, Brad. <laughs> all right. So today we're checking out Pandaren Portwood. Now, we are in the middle of a series of Pendarins that we're doing. This is week two of three. I want to say up front, thanks again, Pandaren, for sending us this whiskey. Because if last week's Madeira finish is any indication, then this Portwood is going to be freaking fantastic. So, just as a reminder, Pandaren is from Wales, the first Welsh whiskey we've had on the podcast. It's a single malt whiskey. They typically age their whiskeys in ex bourbon barrels. And then this one, after the bourbon barrels, they went into ex ruby port casks. So, it's got this really beautiful darker color the last one you know the uh, the madeira finish had some nice coloration to it as well and i think that's primarily coming from these finishes uh i got to say right off the bat brad this one smells very different than the madeira finish one did
0: yeah man i as i jump into this i'm getting like dried cherries dark chocolate it it is like a really it's it's a lot heavier
1: than what we had last week mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the note that I took on this, and I'm actually trying it again live, but the first time I tried it, the note that I took was that this has a very spicy, almost rye-like scent to it. Like, it doesn't smell like rye grain, but it has that kind of like rye whiskey thing going on here, which I wasn't expecting at all. Much, much spicier than the Madeira finish.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'd probably give it an 8 out of 10 on the on the nose. It's a really, really nice
1: nose. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half. It has this really interesting note. I kept smelling something and I was like, it's fruity, but there's like some creamy thing going on here. And it hit me, I don't know, like three or four minutes after I poured it out. It smells just like a uh, peach yogurt. Like I, when you first peel back the thing of a yogurt and the ones that like the fruit on the bottom ones, it smells like the kind of peaches that they put into that kind of yogurt. And I could not shake it. I took a sip and I was like, I get it on here too. I gave it to Carrie, and she said that she actually picked up more cherry too. And I think the cherry's definitely here. But even then, I was tasting and smelling cherry yogurt, so it definitely has that sort of like creamy, almost dairy kind of thing going on, along with some some really sugary, almost dried fruits for me. I like it a lot. I am gonna give it a seven and a half on the nose. I I feel like if film and whiskey ever
0: like creates its own distillery. We're just going to name all of our whiskeys
1: after the different weird fruits that you draw. Peach yogurt. Dude, peach yogurt. Peach yogurt. We would sell zero bottles of peach yogurt whiskey. That sounds <laughs> That sounds horrible. <laughs> it does. It sounds like and, there should be like chunks of dairy like floating and in the bottle. Somewhere. And that's the notes that you're pulling out of it. Mm. <laughs> you know it, man. <laughs> all right, man. What do you, what do you oh, think man. of the taste here, Brad? Are you getting oh. those fruit
0: notes? It is creamy, it is smooth, it is fruity. Uh, There's a bit of honey uh, that kind of like lingers in the middle palate.
1: I love this taste. Uh, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give it an 8.5 out of 10. I'm almost there with you. I'm not taking back the the yogurt thing that I got on this. Like I have two small children, and very frequently we have a third small child in our house because we babysit a nephew, and they eat. So much yogurt. So I've I've had like I've had to finish off so many yogurts over the last year that maybe it's just like on the brain. But man, if this doesn't have peach yogurt and cherry yogurt going on in it, like it, Bro. honestly, to this point, it's like pr- the predominant note for me. I I just took another sip and I was in my
0: brain. I went, damn it, Bob. Ah. It tasted just <laughs> like a peach. Ah, I knew it. Like just like a peach.
1: It's so good, man.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one half. of the most. Yeah, this is one of the most refreshingly. I don't know, man. Bourbon is sweet in its own way. This is like a it's bright. That's the only word I can use. Mm-hmm. It is a bright, sweet
1: flavor that is just really phenomenal. And, and here's the thing. Like, I don't want to undersell Welsh whiskey as a category, but because we've never had it before, you can only compare it to other things. Right. And so. I think we really did kind of hit the nail on the head here last week when we talked about how it has the the brightness of an Irish whiskey and kind of the softness of like a Highland scotch. And this one is no different. And I really do think, Brad, that it stands on its own merits. Like it is great whiskey on its own. But if somebody asked me like, hey, man, I'm I'm really looking to get into scotch or I'm looking to get into Irish whiskey, I almost feel like giving them a bottle of this. Is the best preparation anybody could have for a scotch or an Irish whiskey, and that's not to say this is only a gateway into those things, but like it's just it's so inviting and it's so soft and it's so it's just an easy drinker that I think it really would serve as a great introduction into the world of like European whiskeys. Yeah, man, I am a hundred percent with you. This is one of the
0: smoothest whiskeys that is also just bursting with flavor you know what we had last week with the Madeira was was solid like really great whiskey this is hitting into the like phenomenal range mm. you know as i get into the finish there's a little there's like soft bits of oak that hit as there's a ton of lingering honey for me that kind of finishes off that peachy cherry palette
1: i love it man i'm gonna give the finish a nine yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Well, no, I am going to give it a nine because I feel like I almost undervalued it on the the nose and the taste. This is just a damn good whiskey. And I really liked the Madeira, but I, I'm kind of hard pressed to decide which one I like better at this point. Uh, it has some really great, almost bitter fruit notes. I think that really dark cherry comes out on the end uh, or on the finish more than it did on the palate. I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten. And then on balance, Brad, I'm gonna give this a nine and a half out of ten. This is a, a like a supremely well-balanced whiskey. I cannot recommend this highly enough.
0: Yeah, I actually was just thinking nine and a half as well. The the way that this moves from nose through into the finish is phenomenal. They have gotten the perfect concoction of fruit and oak and honey. And yet, it is bright and inviting
1: and warm. The Pandaren is knocking it out of the damn park, Bob. Yeah, man, I'm I'm so impressed. Um, and that gets us into value. So here's the hard part, because you know Pandaren is not like it's sold in the states, but it's not widely available in the states, and a lot of their offerings. You can find most available through online retailers that are shipping them from overseas. So a lot of times there's like a really significant shipping charge. So it's kind of hard for me to price this one out, Brad. It looks like the retail on this is we'll call it seventy dollars, sixty five to seventy. So if you want to say sixty five, we can. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them have like fifty dollars shipping charges on them. So I, I don't know exactly what to call a fair price for this. Let's just go ahead and say seventy dollars. Uh, at seventy dollars, this is a no-brainer for me. Uh, I don't think it's like uh, an out-of-this-world value, but I think it is priced appropriately for what you're getting in the glass. So at seventy bucks, assuming you wouldn't be spending any more on shipping, I will give this uh an eight out of ten on value.
0: I was gonna say uh, all the research I've done on it, anywhere that I've seen in the U.S. is like ninety to a hundred and ten dollars. And when you get into that at or close to triple digit range, it's it for in my book, it's got to be a out of this world whiskey. I don't know if I'd quite put this in out of this world category, but it's close to it. If I'm spending ninety to a hundred dollars, I think I'd probably give it like a six and a half on value. Mm-hmm. It's still a phenomenal whiskey and hopefully as pandaren you know kind of increases their footprint gets some more distribution in the u.s the price comes down a little bit i am a pandaren fanboy yeah they are putting out spectacular whiskey that i would buy for anyone and like you said bob if you want to get somebody into some european whiskeys
1: get them into pandaren All right, Brad, I'm coming out to a 42.5 out of 50. What are you coming out to? 42. Wow. All right. So we're coming out to a 42.25 or an 84.5 out of 100. Uh, Guys, you may look at our scores out of 100 and see like an 84 and think, okay, like that's a B range. That's, That's not how this works at all. Like anything that scores above a 35 out of 50 or a 70 for us is usually like a recommendation of go out and try it, go out and buy it. Anything that's over 40 is you you need to pick this up. This is a no brainer pickup if you see it on the shelf. So let me say it like this. If you see this near you, this is a no brainer. Buy it. Get a bottle for yourself at home. If you see it at the bar, absolutely try it. But this is one that you're going to want to pour on multiple occasions. Well, Bob, we just kind of went through a no brainer
0: of a kind of a whiskey. Let's get back into our no brainer kind of a movie with charade. Let's do it, Brad. All righty, guys, that was Pandaren Portwood, a whiskey that Bob and I, man, we just can't get enough of Welsh whiskey. I know,
1: man. A whole new world has been opened up to us here.
0: A whole new small peninsula of whiskey (laughs) has been opened (laughs) up to us. (laughs) Well, guys, we, you know, we spent a ton of time in our first half talking about performances, a little bit on cinematography, I'm kind of curious. So I read this article the other day about Charade, and it's from 2013. It's on The Guardian. It's a really great article. It's called Charade, The Last Sparkle of Hollywood. And it kind of focuses in on how this movie was released a few weeks, maybe a month or two after the Kennedy assassination. It was released in the middle of this this French new wave in cinema. Um, th- there's a great, great line from the article where, <laughs> Where it says some somewhere around 1963, just as sexual intercourse began, the classic <laughs> Hollywood movie was dying. Right, so if that if that doesn't draw you in to go to go read the article, I don't know what will. But it-, it really focuses on this idea that like charade was kind of this last gasp of the old guard of of people like Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn who are just uh, Patrick, you put it perfectly. They are beautiful charming attractive people that we get to watch go do really cool things and it just feels like this was one of the last movies that captured that essence before we jumped into a whole new era of movies and it honestly draws me back Bob you sent me a tweet a while back I don't remember who this was or or exactly what they were saying but they basically said I refused to watch any movie before I think it might have been 1975. Oh, I remember this. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, this was Shay Serrano, right? that that really like riled people up, yeah, 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 and I and I feel like there's, I don't know, I just feel like there's something here with charade that it really does sit on the tip of a massive shift in the history of cinema. And I'm just curious, like, what do you guys think about that? Where where do you guys kind of sit on the fence of, like, more modern cinema, 70s, 80s, 90s, and onward versus this golden age? I hadn't quite thought about it, but when you, like, point that
2: out, you're right because this – one of the things that I think is really is really special about this movie is that it does have, like, you know, the – for lack of a better word, uh, the charm – of the you know the old fashioned movie star charm of like lots of you know uh breezy romantic comedies and stuff like that you know from like the 40s and 50s but it does have these more modern uh for for the time uh you know filmmaking styles and approaches they're shooting on location the camera work is more active mm-hmm. it's uh it doesn't quite have like it doesn't feel quite as like sort of like stagey and, you know, and artificial as like movies from like the the previous decade did. Uh and it, mm-hmm. it really makes me wish that like oh, imagine if we had like just another like full decade of movies like this. Just yeah. th- th- just just like a slightly uh just just more modern updated version
1: of the charming golden age of Hollywood type movies. I love watching movies from this kind of like mini era, like the early 60s, because it's not you're right, Brad, like the revolution hadn't quite come in yet. And people always point to 1967 as kind of the year that like the revolutionary cinema was born in America, at least. But like you still have the studio system kind of hanging on to something. And yet you have these filmmakers making these really fresh uh, uh, stylistic choices that weren't being made before. So, like, you know, if you go back to 1960, you need, you take Psycho, for example. Like, what Hitchcock did there was so different from what he had done even a year before with North by Northwest. And I think you see the same kind of thing here. And y- you guys are both right. This movie has one foot in the studio system and the kind of, like, rah-rah uh, charm of the Hollywood stars, but it also has one foot in what you're going to see in the 1970s. And when I was watching the end of this movie, I kept thinking of those kind of gritty 70s, like uh, the taking of Pelham 123 or the French Connection, like that chase through the train seat, like the, the subway, it had elements of that to it. And honestly, I was really surprised at the level of violence in this movie and kind of researching it a little bit. There were quite a few really prominent movie critics that talked about how gruesome the violence was And of course, like by our standards, it's tame. But you think about like what Hitchcock had to go through to get the shower scene in Psycho approved. And then you got this movie where there's just a shot of a guy like riding up an elevator with a knife sticking out of his neck and there's there's blood everywhere. And Coburn gets strangulated with a a plastic bag and like it is kind of gruesome. So I, I do wonder, I don't feel like we hear enough about the early 60s in Hollywood And kind of like the undercurrents that were going on then because this movie feels so different than what you would see either a few years before or a few years after.
2: And also, if I can just uh, add on to that, you have like – I feel like this generational shift perfectly illustrated where, you know, Cary Grant is one of – you know, he's top build in this movie. But then the supporting cast, you know, uh, people – you know, like Walter Matthau is not – Would not have been a movie like a a a leading man in like the forties. He's just Mm -hmm. a little too, you know. He's he's unusual. Sure, Uh, he's not he's not Cary Grant. And then you get to the seventies. Walter Matthau becomes one of the biggest box office draws in Hollywood. He is like you mentioned, taking a in one two three. He's the lead. Yeah, yeah. So you have like this next generation of of like leading man movie stars just like in the supporting roles here like ready to to like step up in like the decade to
1: come all right so brad I'm, i'm curious are you familiar with the story around this movie in terms of like how it fell into the public domain because like one of the big things about this movie is that you can get copies of it of varying qualities because so many companies have their hands on it but do you uh, were you familiar with that? Do you have any idea, like what the story is behind that? Honestly, I, the only reason I know about it is because
0: I went to watch it a few days ago and there's like seven versions of it on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, why in the world are there so many different versions of this movie? Uh, so I, I looked up a little bit. I didn't get too far into the weeds. But, yeah, it is a it's wild
1: that there are so many different versions of this film. All right. So so here's the story, as far as I can tell, like when they have the title card at the end of the movie or at the beginning, whenever, wherever it is in the film. And usually it says, like, copyright and it has the Roman numeral of what year it was made. And it says what studio makes it, you know, the, the rights owners to the movie, the title card for this movie. It says the year and it says Universal Pictures or, or whoever it was that made the movie. and. It says Stanley Donnan on it. It did not have the copyright symbol or the word copyright on it. And so because they didn't claim a copyright and they didn't file it correctly, according to that, it went into the public domain immediately after it was released. Like like they just (laughs) they just did not own this movie anymore. And I like. I don't know how that would hold up in court, but apparently like it's been released enough that it's just generally accepted that this is a public domain movie because of that one tiny clerical error on the cards.
2: Well, I will say uh, I, I was not aware of any of this, but I'll, I'll say that uh, the Criterion Blu-ray does look really, really good.
1: Beautiful transfer. You know what, let's let's pause for just a second because uh Brad, I, I want to I want to surprise you with this. I got you a birthday present, my friend, and oh. I got you the Criterion Blu-ray of charade. It should be on its way to your house right now. So No, I figured, dude. I figured this would be a good entry point into the Criterion collection for you, because you don't own any and you've been asking me for years and years, like, why what's up with the Criterion bros? Like why is it such a big deal? So I, I want to turn the floor over to our friend Patrick Williams here. Patrick, can you please just uh, give us a few seconds for Brad's sake? Why does the Criterion Collection rule? This is funny because I
2: was just having a conversation with a friend of mine of just a few days ago, uh, where I was talking about how I I feel like the the cult around the Criterion Collection can get a little bit extreme. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, you know, like the thing of every time there's there's like a sale, which seems to happen constantly you know it's like the 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 you know almost like the routine where it's like well you got to post a picture on twitter of your criterion hall (laughs) and all that stuff and like every month the announcement of like the new titles being added like everyone like freaks out about that and uh and again these are this is just a company that that releases like you know, discs of movies. It's uh, you know, we should all <laughs> chill out about this a little bit. But I will say, as someone who like I, I think physical media is important, uh, especially you know, when like movies uh, can just basically. Become impossible to get. Sometimes, I uh, sometimes you just can't rent a movie, and it's not on streaming, or and it just like might as well disappear. Um, and I, I think it's good to own things, so I I like physical media in general. I like having a collection, and really with Criterion, it's just that you know that it's going to be the best possible physical release of a movie. It'll be the like the often if if there's like a remaster of like the. You know the the video and audio; it'll be the best it will ever look and sound. But also, just like the care put into the packaging and and like the the, the cover artwork design, the the special features put on there. The, you know, selecting you know some great like, a film writer to write an, an essay for the, that's packaged with each individual movie. It's just, uh, it's not so much that the like the Criterion Collection is like this almost like like these these gods sitting on a high like <laughs> selecting which movies are worthy of, of entering it's like 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 that's that's the vibe it can, it can sometimes have which is a little ridiculous it basically just means that like these great movies are going to you know get the like like the proper release that they deserve and will will now be available in this just like this really beautiful presentation like forever now also, like, also, if you want an illustration of like a good thing the Criterion uh, the Criterion Collection does, uh, Netflix just doesn't release their movies on physical media, which is dumb and annoying. And the Criterion Collection is actually is the only place that that uh gave physical releases to like The Irishman and Roma yeah. and Marriage Story and stuff huh. like that, movies that otherwise you know would only exist on Netflix. So. Yep. That's good.
1: So uh, the reason we turned the floor over to Patrick for five minutes to talk about the Criterion Collection is because, uh, Patrick, I've been trying to to do this to Brad for years. So I've just been g- being really nerdy about why I think Criterion's cool, and, and the man refuses to listen to me. But you are, in many ways, his hero. So I kind of felt like if anyone <laughs> will get Brad on board with the Criterion Collection, like it's, it's going to be Patrick Willems. So th- <laughs> thank you for doing that. I tried. Uh, I tried. Yeah. All right guys, I think that it's time for us to kind of get into final scores here. Uh, Brad, I'll I'll turn it over to you first. This is this was your pick. I'm anxious to hear where you're coming out on this movie having rewatched it for the first time in a few years.
0: No, nah, man, you you always make me pick first. Uh I'm going to throw it at you. All right. You, this is your first time watching the movie, Bob. Where do you land
1: on Charade? Brad, this movie was freaking phenomenal. I Loved this movie, and to the point where I I went downstairs and talked to my wife afterwards, and she hasn't seen it either. She asked how it was, and I said I was thinking about keeping your Criterion Blu Ray when it came to my house, uh, and just not telling you that I got it for you for your birthday because <laughs> because <laughs> I enjoyed it so much. I I don't think it's perfect. I think there's a you know there's a few flaws here and there. I don't know if all the comedy works. I saw a thing online that talked about how that that shower scene is is like the most famous scene in the whole movie, which I was surprised to hear, but. That scene didn't really work for me at all. And I, I thought it really kind of like ground the movie to a halt for a few minutes. So it, it gets a little bit shaggy here and there. But overall, like I I have very little to complain about, Brad. I'm going to give it a nine out of ten.
0: Yeah, I, I think for me, coming back to this film after about five or six years, there are definitely parts of the movie that just kind of hit a few little hiccups Um, As much as I laugh at Jean-Louis every time he's in the film, he might have one of the worst child acting performances of all time (laughs) uh, in the middle of a really phenomenal movie. So it it just it just feels so polar opposite to what the film really wants to be. Um, And there's there's a few moments where I think that the character actors, they just go so over the top. And in scenes like the funeral, it works, and they need to be over the top in their little short Mm -hmm. 10-second time with the deceased. But there's other moments in the movie that, for for me, I think George Kennedy especially, he just feels so wooden uh, and mechanical at times Mm -hmm. that I I (laughs) struggle with him a little bit. Right, see what I did there? There it is. (laughs) Uh, For me, though, it's not a perfect movie, but it's a 9.5 out of 10, Bob. I freaking love yeah. this movie yeah nothing changed in this watch through if anything i appreciated it even more
2: and uh and for me uh i i'm also going nine out of ten if anyone listened to this follows me on letterboxd you probably already guessed that because i logged it as a 4.5 out of five <laughs> yesterday <laughs> uh but but yeah like I, I will say so in the first five minutes i'm watching this being like i think this is the best movie i've ever seen i this is like all i want from cinema i don't think every single moment of the movie perfectly sustains the like all-time high of the opening few minutes uh you know i mean but but most of the i feel like most of the complaints i have mostly come down to like insignificant quibbles like you know Part of it, like for a movie that does have like real genuine stakes, uh like like life or death stakes, you know, like the scene the uh the scene where Cary Grant fights George Kennedy on the rooftop and yeah. then it ends with George Kennedy kind of like hanging from his hook off the side of the building, but then he's like back in the next scene, and I'm I'm just like that's almost like, you know, a little cartoonier than yeah. Uh, than a lot of the rest of the movie is, and uh, but also I'm just like I don't think these are actual problems. Like 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 like, <laughs> like th- th- these do not really like negatively impact the movie, right? Uh, and then especially it ends so strong, like the the Mathau reveal, the whole like or, or I should say the train chase to mm. up to the Mathau reveal, and then the climactic scene. It's like it's just it ends so strongly. I'm I'm just like I was just utterly delighted it's uh again this is i think what what most movies should aspire to be yeah and i think we should we should absolutely get like 10 of these a year and it's it is an outrage that we don't so nine out of ten
1: wonderful film i love it all right there you have it two nines and a nine and a half. But we would like to know what you think. So please, if you follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Let us know what you think of Charade.
0: Or if you want to interact with us more directly, check out our Discord. Uh, Discord is an awesome place where you just get to hang out with your friends, talk about the things you enjoy. Uh, you can find our Discord in our show notes, download it on your phone, grab it on your computer, And talk directly to Bob and I. We engage with our fans every single day, and we just absolutely love.
1: So come join our Discord. All right. uh, Before we let Patrick go, we have just spun the randomizer wheel uh, for for the first uh, of my selections for this season. As you guys know, we kind of have 15 movies each. We're going through them in a random order. The movie that we're doing for our next episode is the 2002 M. Night Shyamalan hit Signs. Uh, Patrick, unfortunately, will not be joining us for that episode, but I I just have to know, man. Uh, Give me like 30 seconds on Signs. Where are you falling on that one? Uh, I genuinely have not seen Signs since I saw it
2: in theaters in 2002. Loved it at the time. I have been meaning to revisit it for years. So sorry, I don't have a more (laughs) up-to-date take.
1: (laughs) That's okay. I think that's why we're doing this kind of episode, because I personally think Everyone needs to go revisit science. Brad, I cannot wait to talk to you about that one next week. We want to thank our guest, Patrick H. Willems, for joining us this week. Patrick, uh, please give a quick plug. Tell us what you're working on right now.
2: So, um, you know, you can, if you enjoyed hearing me talk about movies here, you can uh, hear me talk about, hear and see me talk about movies a lot more over on my YouTube channel, which is uh, my name. um, And over on the YouTube channel, uh, actually, I should... <laughs> uh uh, this will not be on youtube i have spent the last six months work on oh wow this is hard to explain uh (laughs) okay 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 wait wait, patrick um,
0: patrick can i explain it for you please guys patrick is making a dope ass movie and you should go watch it (laughs) that's it there it is Uh, that's it
2: (laughs) yeah yeah you know what i who who needs context for this movie and the fact that you basically have to have watched a year and a half of YouTube videos to even understand it? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been I've been working on a project that uh, you know I thought was going to be a lot smaller than it turned out to be, and we're in post production, and hopefully it'll be done soon. And when it's done, it will premiere on the streaming platform Nebula. So that's and and I I will say I'm still making videos in the meantime just smaller ones than
1: usual because i gotta juggle both projects we cannot wait to see the the end of the charl saga when it premieres on nebula i have been freaking pumped for this for months now so uh i'm so sorry
2: it's taken so long
1: no no please we are expecting an avengers end game level thing at this point so you know (laughs) no no pressure but it's okay (laughs) all right for the film and whiskey podcast i'm bob book I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Patrick, Heyo. thank you for uh, for rambling with me for so long. I appreciate it. Uh, so I I feel like I'm talking too much. I just I'm getting excited because this movie rules. This, it does, man. All right, so so th- this will be the only fanboy thing I'll say while you're here with us today. But um, I was so hoping. That we would get a this movie rules out of Patrick Willems. like this <laughs> it's it is the unofficial unacknowledged catchphrase of like when Patrick really loves a movie like yeah he brings out the word rules about the movie
0: yep <laughs>
2: so yeah I, my I guess my day right. you know I'm I am i am so close to it that I wasn't I didn't realize that like my choice of words was like you know. Like, uh, or, or or that word carried any great significance. And so I'm, I'm really
1: glad. Yeah. Don't get self-conscious about it now either. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to watch like yeah. eight videos and not hear you say it. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Yeah. I, uh, my vocabulary isn't deep enough.
2: I'm just going to keep saying it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs>